My wife was utterly deaf to lofty commendation, letting it pass without a remark. However, some good man sent me a little tract containing a history of a great change in the heart and life of a worldly man. He happened to hear the hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away, exquisitely sung. That became the starting point of a new life. Now, on hearing this, Mrs. Alexander almost sprang from her chair, looked me in the face and said, Thank God, I do like to hear that. Queen of Irish hymn writers, Mrs Cecil Frances Alexander, died in Derry a hundred years ago on the 12th of October 1895. During her lifetime and over the subsequent century, her hymns have played an integral role in communicating the central tenets of the Christian faith to millions of people around the world. For the French composer Charles Gounod, the efficacy of the hymn There is a Green Hill Far Away lay not so much in its poignant rendering of Christian doctrine, Rather, it was, in his estimation, Mrs Alexander's ability to formulate a set of words whose inherent rhythm and metre set themselves to music, thereby making the composer's task less arduous. The universal appeal of Mrs Alexander's hymns and sacred poetry, as well as the appreciation of her personal charitable deeds, was indicated by the cross-section of mourners in October 1895. Led by her husband, the Bishop of Derry, William Alexander, clergy and laity, rich and poor, Protestant and Catholic, all paid their respects, as the Times, the Londonderry Sentinel and the Irish Times reported. The death of Mrs Alexander has evoked a feeling of deep and universal sorrow. All in the city, and more especially the poor, are aware of her quiet and unostentatious charity and goodness. But far beyond this city and these realms is her name known and respected. Shortly before half past eleven o'clock, the slow and solemn tolling of the cathedral bell indicated the approach of the hour for the service. The service, which was of a strikingly simple character, commenced with the singing by the choir. The citizens of Derry, among whom the deceased lady was so well known and so highly esteemed for her many lovable qualities, evinced their deep sorrow for her loss. Most of the houses of business were wholly or partially closed while the service was proceeding in the cathedral and during the mournful procession to the cemetery. Having enriched the hymnology of our country with some of its brightest gems, the nation loses a cultured hymnist, the poor a kind friend.
Mrs. Alexander lived her 77 years against the backdrop of 19th century Ireland, a time of great political and social upheaval. Born into a privileged upper-middle-class family in 1818, her background was Anglo-Irish. Her father, Major John Humphreys, served in the British Navy under Nelson at the Battle of Copenhagen. Close to the Humphreys home in Eccles Street was the parish church St George's in Hardwick Place, designed by the architect Francis Johnson. Unfortunately for the hymn writer, the family had moved from Dublin by the time Edward Bunting was appointed organist to St George's. Otherwise, this pioneer in the study of Irish folk tunes and harp music would surely have had some influence on her. In 1825, Major Humphreys was appointed as agent to Lord Wicklow. A close friendship with Lord Wicklow's daughter, Lady Harriet Howard, provided the young Cecil Humphreys with a kindred spirit. Their intellectual curiosity gravitated towards church affairs and religious doctrine. They were caught up on the wave of enthusiasm which the philosophy of the Oxford movement provoked. Prompted by the influence of Tractarians such as Keeble, Newman and Pusey, they produced their own treatises, with Lady Harriet's prose accompanying Miss Humphrey's verse. However, this high church sentiment, evident from a young age in Cecil Francis Humphreys, was countered by a strong affinity with the evangelical sentiments of a local curate in Straban, where the family had moved in 1833. Under the Reverend James Smith, Cecil Humphreys set about organising a local branch of the Church Missionary Society. This low church evangelical ethos was more representative of the general outlook of the Church of Ireland than that of the philosophy of the Tractarians, as Jean Patterson explains. It be true to say that the 19th century Church of Ireland was heavily influenced um, by the evangelical movement um, of the 1780 period and uh, its people um, were rather Puritan in their approach and um, they certainly were not receptive to the changes that were beginning to come in England uh, in the 1840s. That the young Cecil Humphreys was influenced by the diverse poles of 19th century Protestantism may seem paradoxical, but according to Dean Patterson, they were not mutually exclusive. I don't think there's any paradox in being influenced by both Catholic and evangelical trends. Um, and certainly, uh, Mrs. Alexander, before she, well, indeed, before she was Mrs. Alexander, uh, had been very much influenced by. Uh, Keeble's book of poems on the Christian year, uh, which set out to tell people in poetry uh, of the great feasts of the Christian year. And uh, Mrs. Alexander uh, began herself to tempt this uh, for children. She particularly was fond of children, and indeed had started a number of schools. And for these schools, uh, she wrote hymns that were aiming to tell people uh, the great stories and the great features um, of Christianity. Her first publication was her collection, Verses for Holy Seasons, which was published in 1846. She based the format on John Keeble's book, The Christian Year, which comprised religious verse for the church's seasons and saints. This book had formed the staple food of the young Cecil Humphreys' religious reading matter. What differentiates her book with Keeble's was her intention that her verse should cater for children. From the late 18th century, there had been an increasing emphasis on religious writing for children, stemming from the preoccupation with their moral and spiritual formation. 
It should not surprise us, therefore, that Mrs. Alexander's second collection, published in 1848, was entitled Hymns for Little Children. Keeble, to whom the earlier work had been dedicated, wrote the preface to the second collection. Mrs. Alexander's aim was to instruct children through her verse in the Catechism of the Apostles' Creed. The hymn All Things Bright and Beautiful was originally called Septuagesima and was written to explain the article of the creed, Maker of Heaven and Earth, while once in Royal David's city was called Christmas. It expressed the tenet who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. What is most apparent from Mrs. Alexander's hymns and sacred poems is her ability to express Christian doctrine in a manner which was accessible to both children and adults. The simplicity of her language and her ability to capture an image have perhaps been contributive factors in her hymns' continued popularity. This is despite their genesis in the Victorian era, where a florid and sentimental manner of expression was favoured. Mrs Alexander, however, was reluctant to act on suggested verbal improvements, as her husband informs us in his preface to her collected poems. She disliked with her amusing intensity changes made in hymns to suit a fitful fancy or to humour party spirit. She looked upon it as a literary sacrilege. You see, what I wanted to say is just so-and-so, not something else, she would say. But your suggestion does say something else.
The speed with which Mrs. Alexander wrote some of her hymns belies the careful consideration of rhythm and metre which she gave every sentence in each work. According to Bishop Alexander, no exigencies of rhyme or number of syllables could make her condescend to retain something if its retention impaired the precision and accuracy of her thought. Despite her methodical approach, she was able in the space of a week at the request of the Reverend H. H. Dickinson to write six hymns for six tunes that had already been composed. I had an illustration of the quickness and fertility of our poetic power. When engaged with others in preparing a new edition of the hymnal with music, a musical friend gave me six original tunes composed by himself, not for words, he thought, nor suited for our book. I sent the tunes to Mrs. Alexander, knowing well the special difficulty of the task I was imposing, seeing that it is easier to compose music for given words than vice versa. And yet no words could be imagined better adapted to the music than the six hymns which I received in response to my rather unreasonable request within a week. Without being herself a musician, she caught the very spirit of the tunes and most felicitously wedded them to words which seem as though they were the very breath that had inspired the airs. In total, Mrs. Alexander is believed to have written approximately 100 hymns. The exact number cannot be stated with certitude, as she wrote a number of hymns for particular occasions, which were never used again. In setting about the task of writing a hymn, according to her husband, she always bore in mind the rule of St. Jerome, which stated that those are only hymns which set forth in measure the power and majesty of God and are fixed in perpetual admiration of either his benefits or doings. In a similar vein, St. Augustine defined a hymn as that which must be sung or capable of being sung. It must be praise and it must be to God. The advent of so much new hymn writing in the 19th century was symptomatic of the expressive devotional piety which the evangelical revival of the first half of the century fostered. The establishment of the Salvation Army and the evangelism of Methodists and Baptists gave hymns a new liturgical emphasis. The Church of England, however, was slow to adopt anything that smacked of nonconformity. But as Dean Patterson explains, there had always been a strong tradition of hymn singing in Christian worship. Hymn singing had always been part of church life. I mean, in the early Christian days, um, you get hymns in defence of Christ's incarnation. In the medieval period, you get the emphasis on uh, Christ's passion. When St Thomas Aquinas uh, wished to make popular uh, his doctrine of uh, transubstantiation, he put it into hymn form, and people could therefore identify with it. They could sing about it, and what people sang about they could easily assimilate into their own minds. Now, the same thing happened in the 18th century. The Church of England at the time, the Church of Ireland at the time, was largely singing metrical psalms. But people like the Watts and the Wesleys said, we must bring the free love of God, as is shown in the New Testament, we must bring this to the people of God. And so they wrote hymns about the love of God, hymns based on the New Testament. And eventually, this permeated into the Church of England and the Church of Ireland, 
in the 1860s you get hymns ancient and modern which was the first modern anglican hymn book followed quite soon afterwards by uh, the first irish church hymnal and uh, they were proclaiming some of these new hymns and this new belief uh, largely arising from the evangelical movement um, that Christ is close to us, Christ is near us, and that uh, as we sing to the praise of God, we must sing in words that are um, easily understood uh, by people. And of course, the musical end of it, uh, well, they were most of these hymn writers uh, were well served by the fact that music could be cheaply produced, and there was a good variety of musicians uh, who would provide music. Now, some of it, some of the hymn tunes um, are pretty ropey, um, but a great many of them uh, will still uh, last. I mean, gauntlets tuned to once in Royal David City. Nobody has ever suggested another tune possible um, for that hymn. And um, he, for example, served Mrs. Alexander well, and she served him well by providing tune and hymn that matched each other, and people to this day are still singing it, just the same as they are still singing um, um, All Things Bright and Beautiful. The first important compilation incorporating the recent contributions of the Anglican Church to hymnody was the hymnal Hymns Ancient and Modern, published in 1861. The music editor W.H. Monk drew from adaptations of German chorales and plainsong melodies, while at the same time including contributions from musicians such as Dykes and Oosley. Monk himself contributed 17 new tunes. Of the 273 hymns in the 1861 edition, 123 hymns were Latin translations, 10 were German and 131 were of English origin. Hymns ancient and modern undoubtedly helped to popularise the new hymnic writing which it included, as Dean Patterson explains. Hymns ancient and modern was the first Anglican hymn book uh, to have wide popular appeal. It was produced in the 1860s. Um, it, it scrapped a lot of sentimental material that had been used in earlier private hymn books. Um, it attempted to bring together um, hymns from ancient tradition, like some of the early Christian hymns. It attempted to bring some of the modern or the medieval hymns uh, into modern use again, and it encouraged people to write hymns themselves, um, so that people of the contemporary period um, were able to say in words what their Christian belief was. The English hymnal was published in 1906 and it also um, produced a new edition um, some uh, just a few years ago. Uh, but in the meantime there had been several new editions uh, of hymns ancient and modern so that its popular appeal has ensured that it could be regularly brought up to date and uh, new hymns brought into being in a way that very few other hymn books have been able to do. Being in the Church of Ireland, for example, um, we had a new hymn book in the 1930s and, and then again in the 1960s. Um, but the 1930s hymn book had actually only been a slight revision of what had gone on previously. And the 1960s hymn book is still in use and we're now in the approaching the year 2000. <laughs> When the 1875 edition of Hymns Ancient and Modern was published, 13 of Mrs Alexander's hymns were included, 
and the tunes of musicians such as Oosley, Horsley and Gauntlet were combined very effectively with her words. In the wake of the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland, the Irish Church Hymnal was expanded to incorporate more material. The appendix which was added included six hymns which Mrs Alexander wrote especially for the hymnal, as well as a number of her already well-established hymns. It was the Dean of the Royal Chapel in Dublin Castle, H. H. Dickinson, who commissioned what was to become one of Mrs Alexander's greatest contributions to Irish hymnody, I Bind Unto Myself Today, or St Patrick's Breastplate. At the time of Dickinson's request to Mrs Alexander, a low-key academic interest in the Gaelic language was beginning to establish itself and was ultimately to flourish in the Celtic revival of the latter part of the 19th century and more especially at the beginning of the 20th century. Amongst the translations which Dean Dickinson sent to Mrs Alexander, he included the scholar Whitley Stokes' version of the Lorica of St Patrick. In this lyrical rendering of his Christian faith, St Patrick was, according to tradition, on his way to the court at Tara to face possible death for his attempt to convert the local pagans. The poignancy of his position must have struck Mrs Alexander forcibly, for she was not long in creating her sensitive metrical hymn of Stokes' translation. I wrote to her suggesting that she should fill a gap in our Irish church hymnal by giving us a metrical version of St Patrick's Lorica, and I sent her a carefully collated copy of the best prose translations of it. Within a week she sent me that exquisitely beautiful as well as faithful version which appears in the appendix to our church hymnal, which is now sung in many churches on St. Patrick's Day and is also sung in all chapels. Might well be a bond of union and of fellowship among all Irish Christians.
Cecil Francis Alexander's long and productive career as a poet and hymn writer was juggled with the demands of rearing a family. She also assisted William Alexander in his pastoral duties, as well as playing an active role in a number of charitable organisations. Her faith, the source of inspiration for her writing, was based on a very practical philanthropy. Her visits to the poor and infirm of Derry of all persuasions is well documented. Furthermore, she donated the proceeds from her writing, such as her collection, Hymns for Little Children, to the School for the Deaf which she and her sister Annie founded in Straban. It is indicative of her ecumenical disposition that at a time when accusations of superism abounded, she nursed a Catholic woman suffering from cancer back to health without any aspersion being cast on her motives. After her husband's election as Bishop of Derry in 1867, her pastoral visitations occupied her time to an even greater extent, to the detriment of her writing. A family member recorded that during this period of time it was more likely to see her with a needle in her hand than a pen. When her husband became Bishop of Derry, that she became very much involved in helping the poor and the sick of all denominations in Derry, and that she was, um, her presence was acceptable wherever she went. And in particular, she was great friends with the Sisters of Nazareth uh, because she respected them so much for the work that they were doing for the poor uh, in Derry at the time. My darling wife's funeral had something of a marvellous and enchanting softness about it. It put me in mind of what we read of the death of some Italian saints. Suddenly there grew up a mysterious impression among our hard northerners that a great soul was passing from the earth, and they packed the streets in thousands, awestruck and hushed, with exquisite courtesy and refinement. Letters of sympathy came to me from hundreds, from all churches, Roman Catholics, Salvationists and Coventers, Congregationalists and Baptists. If widespread love for my beloved wife could give comfort, mine should be great.
Some contemporary commentators have found Mrs. Alexander's hymns and poems too tame, considering the social depredation prevalent at the time. In fact, the commemoration of her death and her contribution to the repertory of devotional hymns has been overshadowed by controversy recently. In September, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Leeds, Dr. David Constant, condemned all things bright and beautiful as dreadful and unintentionally wicked, leaving a cloud hanging over this devoutly Christian woman's work. The bishop's ire was directed towards the third verse of the hymn. The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high or lowly and ordered their estate. The charge levelled by Dr Constant claims that it advocates a complacent acceptance of the inequitable distribution of wealth between the rich and poor. Assigning such motives to Mrs Alexander is an argument on dubious grounds. Dean Patterson. I don't think it was ever intended to be a commentary on society. What that hymn is telling us, that God created us and that we are there to love God with all our hearts. Indeed, I think if you compare Mrs. Alexander's hymn um, with many of the modern songs that are being, being written, a number of these songs suggest that indeed we may have been created as an animal. There's one that goes, a wiggly, waggly worm, a slippery, slimy slug. Of all the things to be, I'm happy that I'm me. Now, I think all things bright and beautiful is way beyond that in what it's telling us. Uh, about God. It could be argued that Bishop Constance's interpretation of this verse is a misrepresentation of what Mrs Alexander intended to say, especially when it is considered in the context of the overall message of the hymn. She may, in fact, have been seeking to instil in children the concept of an inclusive God who cherishes all his handiwork, no matter what its state or status. Everything and everyone is worthy of his love, Young and old, the sunset and the dawn, the rich and the poor, he doesn't differentiate. If this was Mrs Alexander's intended message, then the debate over the existence or lack of a comma in the third line is significant and perhaps may allay our fears in regard to this wicked hymn. I think we do need to look at it in the context of the entire hymn. I think if you... Uh, indeed, it has been suggested by some people that if you take the verse, um, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, and then continue, God made them, comma, high and lowly, comma, and ordered their estate, that it changes the context uh, of the verse. It makes it clear that it was uh, very much a Victorian commentary on a hymn. Now, as I say, the bishop has taken this out of context. He has tried to make it appear as though the church today was trying to say uh, the same things. But, you know, as far back as the 1950s, um, people were saying that it was not a verse that really should be included, um, no matter how you interpreted it, uh, and that perhaps it was better left out as the new hymn books at the time were doing. Indeed, in a controversy in the Daily Telegraph at the time, because the verse was being left out, the then rector of Farnborough uh, wrote a rather amusing verse, which was, the poor man in the castle, the rich man at the gate. The charge is two and sixpence to visit the estate. Mrs Alexander's uh, hymns uh, were not meant to be uh, joked about, nor were her verse verses meant to be taken uh, as serious social comment on the order of the day. Um, what she was essentially doing was for children 
commenting on the Nicene Creed. And here she was commenting on, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, it's difficult, as I say, for modern hymn writers to do any better on that verse than she did all those years ago.